Before we start this week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast, just the usual word of thanks to Sora Shimazaki at Pexels, who took the photograph which adorns the cover art. Let's get on with it. Hello and welcome to the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. I'm your host, Chris Kirkbride. Now, I thought last week was a bumper week for financial crime stories, but last week has nothing on this week. So I think without further ado, I'll just crack on with it. As ever, all the links to the major stories are in the podcast description. We'll start this week with sanctions. There's still a decent range of sanctions news lighting up the wires. Much of it comes from the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but there are some other bits and pieces. First, the US and the UK have announced that they will cooperate further on sanctions against Russia following the invasion. One of the issues with sanctions globally is the lack of coordination, especially when it comes to individuals sanctioned. While this move is to be welcomed, still further coordination is needed, especially with pan-national organisations such as the European Union. Coordination from all three would certainly work well for those in compliance, but also send a more compelling message to those subject to sanctions. The link to the US Treasury Department press release is in the podcast description. If you'd rather read the blog post on the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation website, which is word for word the same, that is also in the podcast description. Across to the EU now, where it's been reported that the Foreign Affairs Committee is considering the contents of its ninth package of sanctions against Russia. The Latvian Minister for Foreign Affairs, Edgars Rinkovics, wrote on Twitter, The EU Foreign Affairs Council will call for more support for Ukraine, work on the ninth sanctions package against Russia, confiscation of the frozen, frozen Russian state assets, and the establishment of the Special Tribunal for the Crime of Aggression Committed by Russia. The consideration of the ninth package follows Russia's use of Iranian drones to attack civilian and infrastructure targets across Ukraine, and it follows shortly after the agreement of the eighth package after Russia's illegal annexation of Donetsk, Luhansk, Zaporizhia and Kurzon regions of Ukraine. Sticking with the drones, the EU has agreed to sanctions on three individuals and one entity over the supply of drones to Russia. These targeted sanctions were echoed by moves in the United Kingdom, where it was announced that three individuals and one corporation were targeted by sanctions following the sale of drones to Russia. The additions are three military personnel from Iran and an armaments manufacturer from the same country. The UK has also issued a license this week to allow designated persons, companies owned and controlled by designated persons or their legal representatives, to make payments to the London Court of International Arbitration to cover their arbitration costs. The link to the license is in the podcast description. In news allied specifically to the military action in Ukraine, the US Treasury has placed sanctions on a Russian network which procured military and sensitive dual-use technologies from US manufacturers and supplied them to Russia. Those sanctioned are Russian national and procurement agent Yuri Ureyevich Orekov and two of his companies, Norddeutsche GmbH and Opus Energy Trading. The link to the Department of the Treasury press release is in the podcast description. 
Now we move away from sanctions to money laundering. We start this week with reports that an Australian casino has had its license suspended and a record fine of 100 million Australian dollars imposed following anti-money laundering failings. The Star Casino is alleged to have had less than convincing AML practices and extraordinarily that it attempted to cover its tracks when problems were identified. While the casino has said that it will endeavour to reverse the suspension of the licence, this action should be seen in a wider global effort by regulatory agencies targeted at casinos and broader gambling entities to get their house in order when it comes to anti-money laundering. Uh, as I've reported in previous editions of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, both the US and the UK have been getting tough with gambling agencies over their AML failings. I predicted at the time that we would see more of this, and so it has come to pass. To the Netherlands now, where it has been announced that part of ING is being investigated for violation of AML regulations. The particular part of ING is PayVision, which AM, uh, ING rather acquired in early 2018. It's understood that the investigation relates to the time before ING purchased the card acquirer and payments platform. Now, significant news from the legal sector and its role at the front line of combating money laundering and terrorist financing with a report published by Spotlight on Corruption and uh, Global Integrity Anti-Corruption Evidence Programme, which highlights failings that it regards as continuing. The report identifies five key findings. First, there are still significant levels of non-compliance with anti-money laundering rules in the legal sector. Secondly, the legal sector benefits from unique protections when it comes to AML rules. Thirdly, legal sector supervisors have low levels of enforcement and are imposing low levels of fines for breaches of AML rules. The body set up in 2018 to drive consistency in supervision in the legal and accountancy sectors, namely the Office for Professional Body AML Supervision, or OPBAS as it's known, has not been able to raise standards sufficiently across the board. And fifthly and finally, a lack of transparency by legal se sector supervisors in, the, in their enforcement actions and inconsistency in the collection of supervisory data are undermining the effectiveness of the UK's AML. As I've said, these are the headlines, and while I've not had chance for a deeper dive, I have seen a number of robust defences from those working in the sector, suggesting that the report may not be entirely balanced. Indeed, even what I've read has caused me to raise the odd eyebrow. If I formulate any further thoughts, I'll share them in next week's podcast. In the meantime, the executive summary and the full report are in the podcast description. Now over to the European Union, where there's been a rather significant money laundering report published by Eurojust. The report aims to support national authorities investigating and prosecuting cross-border money laundering cases by providing a structured overview of the legal and practical issues to be expected and possible solutions, including using the European Union Agency for Criminal Justice Cooperation, which is Eurojust, tools to enhance judicial cooperation. The report is based on an analysis of cases registered at Eurojust from the 1st of January 2016 to the 31st of December 2021. 
The report highlights 10 areas representing what it calls its most relevant legal and practical challenges. Number 1. Differences in national law in relation to the requirements for identifying the predicate offence. The predicate offence is the offence which generates the criminal proceeds which then need to be laundered uh, for the conviction for money laundering. In order to investigate money laundering, some countries will have to investigate the predicate offence as well. Number two, the relevance of dual criminality and the money laundering predicate offence, that is, one, lack of substantive harmonisation concerning whether money laundering would constitute an offence in any member state, irrespective of the jurisdiction where the predicate offence was committed, or two, when under national law or national case law, dual criminality is indispensable for international charges and the predicate offence in question does not constitute a crime in that country but merely an administrative offence. Number three, the lack of harmonisation concerning what constitutes a predicate offence for money laundering and criminalisation of self-laundering may cause difficulties in prosecuting and in judicial cooperation in situations where money is laundered through several jurisdictions. Fourth, difficulties arising from the use of cryptocurrencies, which has been on the policy agenda for some considerable time, and I've talked about this on previous editions of the Financial Crime Weekly. The use of this type of digital currency makes it difficult to keep track of the assets held by those under investigation. It's essential to know the activity and mechanisms used to monetize or convert cryptocurrency into legal tender. Number five, Financial expertise and resources that are required to analyse data relating to large amounts of cryptocurrency that are used to launder money and to ascertain whether they are relevant to the investigations in the other countries involved. Number six, identification of the beneficial owner of the criminal asset, something that is again high on the policy agenda across the globe, not just in the EU. In fact, I saw something about Switzerland looking to establish keen system on that today, which is made difficult by the existence and use of shell companies or letterbox companies, by the identification of extraneous elements in the company's structures, or by the fact that suspects usually do not act under their own name to hide the financial trail that would show the illicit origin of the money. Moreover, the difficulties in and importance of establishing beneficial ownership in third-party confiscation. This shows that clarity in the rules on beneficial ownership is of the utmost importance in money laundering and in other cases. Number seven, practitioners are still not sufficiently familiar with the regulation on the mutual recognition of freezing orders and confiscation orders. Number eight, issues relating to determining who is considered a victim in any given country who can apply for compensation and how to ensure proportionate compensation of all victims when the amount frozen is not enough to be restituted to all victims. Number nine, some cases show that the tracing of money transfers within the European Union is reasonably manageable, but when cooperation is required from outside the EU, it becomes difficult and sometimes authorities discontinue the pursuit of such cooperation. And finally, number 10, conflicts of jurisdiction arising from the essentially different qualification of one criminal activity covering two jurisdictions. For example, in one jurisdiction, 
the actions qualify as VAT fraud, while in the other they qualify as money laundering. The report also identifies 10 most relevant best practice which it has identified. 1. Issuing a European investigation order or letter of request to request certain investigative measures but also to trigger consideration of whether to launch a criminal investigation into the predicate offence. 2. The use of highly skilled experts to perform house searches with a focus on digital devices and to take copies of relevant electronic evidence with the aim of obtaining access to crypto wallets belonging to the main suspect. 3. The use of asset recovery offices even in the apparent absence of a criminal investigation for the purpose of identifying assets from suspects in other countries. 4. The benefits of including the consideration of asset recovery precautionary measures within the framework of a joint investigation team. 5. Establishing a joint investigation team solely for the purpose of conducting a financial investigation, if such is possible under the law of the countries involved. 6. Cooperation between public prosecutors' offices and financial intelligence units FIUs, is essential for an efficient system for tackling money laundering. 7. Where possible and in accordance with the legal principles of each member state, the adoption of an interpretation of a member state's criminal code to allow a civil recovery order to be recognised with an undertaking by the given member state's judiciary to cooperate internationally in criminal matters. In another case, the legal basis chosen was the spontaneous exchange of information under the Convention of 29th May 2000 on mutual assistance in criminal matters between member states of the European Union. Number 8. The benefits of clarifying via Eurojust where appropriate the valid legal basis to freeze funds for restitution to the victims. 9. When in some countries the violation of due diligence measures is not a criminal offence and there is no corporate liability, consideration should be given to agreeing on international recommendations and standards. Number 10. The increase in the number of contact points for Eurojust and liaison prosecutors posted at Eurojust has proven very useful in operation, in cooperation rather, with third countries. The links to the executive summary and the full report are available in the podcast description. And frankly, if you have any involvement in that, it's certainly worth having a look at that. Now we turn away from money laundering after that rather lengthy set of lists to look at fraud. Now to a story which we've covered in various forms over the last few months on the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, and it relates to the rise in fraud allied to the cost of living crisis, which is a problem across the globe. You may remember that two weeks ago we covered a story relating to the publication of a Financial Conduct Authority research paper on customers paying for the rising cost of living by withdrawing pension savings and thereby making themselves vulnerable to fraud. Well, this week some research has been published by LexisNexis Risk Solutions, which has found that around 43% of financial services firms expect to see an increase in fraud related to the cost of living crisis. While this might be expected and of concern in and of itself, it is even more of a cause for concern when set against the fact that around 30% of those firms felt that anti-fraud and financial crime systems were not keeping up with the pace of change in criminal strategies 
for dealing with such fraud. Indeed, the research goes on to identify that scammers are putting more effort into targeting individuals, clearly believing that the risk and effort is certainly worth the reward. This might be indicative of two things. First, that they're spending more time in the development of believable scams through convincing technology, or secondly, that they're simply putting in more man-hours in literally scamming people through person-to-person interaction over the phone or live chat or whatever else. Either way, it looks like the effort being put in is certainly significant. In response to the threat, the report indicates that around 70% of firms are investing more in technology to combat the problem. As ever, And frankly, I know I start to sound like a bit of a broken record. But the best way to combat this is by starting to look at the victim. Education. Warn everyone. Parents, children, siblings, nephews, nieces, second cousins, five times removed, if there is such a thing. Warn everyone you know that if something is too good to be true, it almost certainly is too good to be true. There are plenty of agencies who can help and support, even provide financial support if you know people who are in dire need so they don't fall foul or victim to these scammers. Contact them instead of contacting these scammers. Keep an eye on this sort of story. There will only be more of these as we pass through the next couple of years. The cost of living crisis is certainly not going to ease and inflation is rumoured to be or likely to peak early in 2023. Just make sure that your loved ones don't end up victims. In fact, as a little public service announcement, what I've done in the podcast description is link to the National Crime Security Centre advice on 10... uh, National Cyber Security Centre, rather, advice on 10 steps to cyber security. Direct anyone you know to the link in the podcast description. As we approach a typical time for giving in the Christian calendar, this is the gift which keeps on giving. Actually, before I end this section, I just want to flag a blog post on the Institute of Chartered Accountants in England and Wales website, which I've had no time to cover, but which is also relevant to this point. It looks at how the cost of living crisis has shifted focus, the f- shifted the focus both of the hunter and the hunted. The link is in the podcast description and remember it's fun to charter an accountant and sail the wide accountant sea with thanks to monty python's flying circus for that one now we turn away from fraud to global crime trends been quite a bit churning this week around cybercrime interpol has published its first global crime trends report with some in equal parts interesting and worrying statistics reflective of its 195-member jurisdiction participant responses. Of the respondents, some 60% ranked financial crimes such as money laundering, ransomware, phishing and online scams as high or very high threats. Certainly phishing, smishing and online scams have increased significantly during the global pandemic, but the outlook is also pretty bleak too. Around 70% of respondents indicated that they expect crimes like ransomware attacks and phishing to increase or significantly increase in the next three to five years. As the report provides from the global perspective, as rates of digitalization have rapidly accelerated, 
particularly during the pandemic, online social engineering for the purpose of financial fraud, victim manipulation and impersonation scams are increasingly significant. This would certainly dovetail with the LexisNexis report discussed earlier. Breaking down by region, Africa, which includes the sub-Saharan region for the most part, indicated high financial fraud as the financial crime trend perceived to represent high or very high threats in the region. Particularly vulnerable is mobile banking, where the region is especially active. It also echoes the global commentary from the report in relation to the rampant digitalization leading to challenges. These comments are echoed in the Americas, which includes North and South of the Americas, but with a particular focus on money laundering. As the report provides, money laundering, although a crime unto itself, is a critical crime enabler, and financial institutions in the region have likely played a central role in laundering illicit proceeds which sustain and empower organised crime. In terms of cybercrime, ransomware specifically was identified as a regional threat. In Asia and Pacific, pandemic-accelerated digitisation exposed greater risk of cyber-enabled financial crime and fraud. On cybercrime, much of what is said in the rest of the world is echoed for that region. Moving to Europe, which includes Russia, Money laundering and fraud were identified as particular threats, with an identified trend in the use of online tools by criminals. Cybercrimes identified as notable threats are phishing, online scams and ransomware. Finally, in the Mideast and northern continental Africa, financial fraud and money laundering were identified as particular threats, with Special mention going to the Gulf Cooperation Council, which was noted as being vulnerable to money laundering because of its position as a global financial hub. The report also notes that the global, well, the Gulf Cooperation Council, that ransomware and distributed denial-of-service attacks, uh, DDoS attacks, are the uh, most prevalent threat in this area, resulting in disruption, data breach and financial loss. We now turn away from that to a bit of UK regulatory enforcement this week. In the UK, the Financial Conduct Regulator, the Financial Conduct Authority, has been busy bringing financial services firms to heel. First, the FCA has initiated criminal proceedings against five individuals involved in a London Stock Exchange-listed company called Worthington Group PLC. The press release, which, frankly, I'm just going to quote because it provides more culling detail than I could provide myself, the FCA launched a criminal investigation into market abuse and market manipulation in 2016, following the suspension of Worthington Group PLC shares from the official list and main market of the London Stock Exchange on the 10th of October 2014. Mr Aidan Early, Mr Ware... Mr. Spurway and Mr. Bigger have each been charged with two counts of fraudulent trading. Mr. Ware was the director and CEO, Richard Spurway was a director, and Mr. Bigger's role was as a media advisor. Aidan Early is alleged to have been concerned in the management of WRN despite him being disqualified from acting as a company director.
They're all alleged to have been involved in running the company. The first count alleges that between the 1st of June 2012 and the 21st of November 2016, the individuals knowingly concealed WRN's insolvent financial position from the market, its shareholders and its pension fund to make gains for themselves or others or to cause loss to others, including new investors in WRN. The second count alleges that between the 1st of March 2013 and the 10th of October 2014, Aidan Early, Mr Ware, Mr Spurway and Mr Bigger coordinated what is commonly referred to as a pump-and-dump scheme, pumping the price and then dumping it uh, for a profit. It's alleged that the defendants made a series of misleading announcements to the market about deals with energy, media and mining companies. I have to say, when I was writing questions on market abuse and insider dealing for my uh, financial crime undergraduate and postgraduate modules, I used to I used to like putting a good old pump and dump scheme in there. It's alleged that the accused wanted to artificially inflate the share price so they could make significant profits from selling off parts of their company shareholdings and cause a loss to those who purchased WRN shares due to the misleading statements. Mr Aidan Early has further been charged with acting in contravention of a disqualification order contrary to Section 13 of the Company's Directors' Disqualification Act 1986. Mr Woolstan Early has been charged with money laundering the proceeds of sale of shares in Worthington Group PLC contrary to Section 327 of the Proceeds of Crime Act 2002. The alleged offending took place between the 1st of June 2012 and the 21st of November 2016. Mr Aidan Early, Mr Ware, Mr Spurway, Mr Bigger and Mr Woolston Early appeared before Westminster Mags on the 20th of October 2022 and the matter has been sent to Southwark Crown Court. Next appearance at the Crown Court is 17th November 2022. The link to that press release is in the podcast description, though it's scarcely worth going to it because I think I've quoted fairly most of it there. This week, the FCA has also announced that Barclays Bank has referred its decision notice to the Upper Tribunal Tax and Chancery Chamber. As you probably know, the FCA fined Barclays £50 million in relation to its failure to disclose certain arrangements agreed with Qatari entities as part of its capital raising announced on the 25th of June 2008 and the 31st of October 2008. You may remember this was the height of the global financial crisis and Barclays was looking to raise capital sums. The upper tribunal, as it does, will conduct a de novo review of the decision should be an interesting one to follow this one. Might be worth keeping tabs on it. The link to the press release relating to the announcement is in the podcast description. This link also further links to the decision notice originally issued, together with links to the relevant parts of the Financial Conduct Authority's rules in this area. Finally, from the FCA this week, they flagged the scammers offering to write off debts in exchange for the payment of fees, even where the scheme fails. The Financial Conduct Authority believes that there are unauthorised claims management firms offering these kinds of service who are not authorised across the UK. As the Financial Conduct Authority press release provides, the firms might try to convince individuals by pointing to ideas such as straw man, 
freeman of the land and sovereign citizen. These ideas promote the belief that the government and laws of a country have no powers over people. Utter rubbish. Utter rubbish, by the way. That's my words. That doesn't appear in the FCA press release. Fraudsters use these ideas to appeal to people facing financial difficulties who may be looking for a way out of their debt. Individuals should be cautious of any firms offering to write off debt. These scams often increase in times of economic hardship and can involve vulnerable victims who are already struggling with money. In fact, this is quite a theme of today's, or this week's, Financial Crime Weekly podcast. The link to that press release is in the podcast description. I've also linked in the podcast description the information which the Financial Conduct Authority website provides to consumers on how they can protect themselves from scams. Really, this week's pod has been about a public service. We'll end this week with a quick mention of a story on corruption. Spotlight on corruption. Once again, they've been busy bees this week. Not only did it publish its report on money laundering and the legal sector, but it also published its briefing on the work of the Serious Fraud Office office for the Justice Committee session on the 19th of October 2022. The summary provides... The SFO, that is the Serious Fraud Office, has come under intense scrutiny after a series of high-profile setbacks, with recent reviews by Brian Altman KC and Sir David Calvert-Smith KC providing forensic insight into the disclosure failures that caused the collapse of the Serco and Unioil cases. The lack of resourcing, outdated technology and poor management has resulted in overstretched case teams Poor quality assurance and disclosure failures, leaving the SFO with exorbitant legal bills that could have been avoided if these challenges facing the SFO had been addressed sooner. The recommendations arising from the two reviews must be implemented swiftly, and attention turned to strengthening the capacity of confidence in the Serious Fraud Office. The evidence makes five recommendations. First, Urgent reform and resourcing of disclosure. I think that's being something which is being looked at currently. Secondly, stronger oversight, accountability and support of SFO, senior management. Three, measures to boost and protect SFO resources. Four, reformed rules on corporate criminal liability. Again, something that's being looked at. And five, bolder ambition to tackle serious economic crime and corruption. Link to the evidence is in the podcast description. And relax. That's it for an exhaustingly long episode of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. If you want to do so, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll hear from me again, all being being well. (laughs) There you go. All being well next Sunday with the usual roundup of all things financial crime. I hope you have a much easier week in the coming week than it has been in the past one. Take care, everyone.